This is an Area Code podcast. Welcome back to Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm your host, Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider trying to embrace a genre I've always held at a distance. This is episode two on Patsy Montana. In episode one, we saw Patsy Montana find her way from Hope, Arkansas, where she learned violin and started listening to Jimmy Rogers records, to California, where she won a radio contest singing Jimmy Rogers' songs and got her own radio spot on KMTR in Hollywood, where she meets Stuart Hamblin and joins a new group, the Montana Cowgirls. This is where she changes her name to Patsy Montana and stars in a few short films and becomes regionally famous. Patsy visits her family in Arkansas and is invited by Jimmy Davis to record with him in Camden, New Jersey, where Patsy records her first records. Back in California, the Montana Cowgirls break up and Patsy moves back to Arkansas. This is where we pick up episode two. So here is Patsy, back in her hometown, becoming known for her Western singing and readying herself to return to California to make another go at the music business. Most evenings, when the conditions are just right, all the way down in Hope, Arkansas, Patsy's parents listen religiously to the National Barn Dance. Patsy starts to listen as well, for the first time, unable to hear it in California. She says, When I was home on vacation, I had heard the girls of the Golden West over WLS and wrote to them my first fan letter. I'm just a lonely cowgirl. I admired their Western singing and harmony. Their manager answered my letter and asked me to come by WLS to see him. The year was 1933. Patsy's parents had an enormous watermelon growing in their backyard, and the mayor of Hope had an idea. Patsy says, I was a big star from California and all, a big star in Hope, Arkansas, and the mayor got the idea of me taking that watermelon to the state fair. I mean to the World's Fair in Chicago. Oh, I just fell for that, you know, because I didn't have to be back in California. In fact, I was engaged to a young guy out there. I was going to get married and all that stuff, you know. So my two brothers and I brought this watermelon to Chicago, and it seemed like the mayor gave us a check for $20. It wasn't very much, I know. We brought that watermelon from Hope, Arkansas now to the World's Fair in Chicago. Before I left, my mother said, I want you to go by WLS and say hello to her favorite announcer, and his name was Hal O'Halloran, and I said I would. So we delivered the watermelon, and our picture, I think, came out in the Chicago paper and all that deal. So I drove back to WLS. The Prairie Ramblers were auditioning for a girl singer. I don't know how. I, I just walked in on it somehow. I don't know exactly what happened. Other versions of the story have Patsy's mother suggesting the watermelon trip and Patsy and her brothers playing gigs to earn the cash to pay for gas. Another has Patsy's mother writing The Girls of the Golden West, which is the version that Millie Good remembers. Whichever is true, Patsy finds herself in Chicago in 1933, and she stops by the 8th Street Studios where the National Barn Dance is held. Here's how she describes her first time setting foot in the 8th Street Theater in Chicago. 
When I stepped into the theater, it was dark, except for the lighting down front and on the stage. As I headed down the aisle, I could make out several people milling around, as if they were waiting for something or someone. Can I help you? Someone asked. I'm here to see Millie and Dolly Good, I said, the girls of the Golden West, I added, as if I needed to explain further. Sure, the man said, down the hall. He pointed with his head. Backstage, people came and went, and as I knocked on the open door, I saw costumes hanging around the room. Yes, one of the sisters said. I introduced myself, and I just rather reinforced everything Mama had already told them in her letters. Honey, Dolly said, the Prairie Ramblers are looking for a girl singer. If you're interested, go sign up. They're having auditions this afternoon. That was all I needed to hear. I thanked them kindly, stopped at the office to put my name in the hat, and went outside to the car. If I had been a smoker, this would have been the time to light up. Instead, I went across the street to a little luncheon counter and ordered a Coke. Patsy makes a point to say that at this time, there were few solo female singers in the entertainment business. She can only name Grace Wilson and Kate Smith as exceptions. The thought of her becoming a popular singer herself was unimaginable. So who exactly are these prairie ramblers Patsy is auditioning for? We heard a little bit about them in the Jenny Lou Carson-Lucille Overstake episode, mostly in their incarnation as the body or alter ego, the Sweet Violet Boys. Before coming to WLS, the Prairie Ramblers are known as the Kentucky Ramblers, playing mostly old-time string band music. The band is Jack Taylor on bass, Tex Atchison, one-time Dolly Good husband, on left-handed fiddle. Chick Hurt on mandolin, and the group founder Salty Holmes on guitar. With three years experience under their belt, the band arrived at WLS not long before Patsy Montana. The band made an attempt at having another female lead, Dixie Mason. The Dixie Mason configuration didn't last and they never recorded with her. At the audition, Patsy plays Stuart Hamblin's Texas Plains and an original. The Prairie Ramblers were impressed, and she gets the gig. After convincing the band of four men that touring with them wouldn't be an issue, she grew up with ten brothers after all. Of course, Patsy hadn't planned on moving to Chicago, but here she was, with a new job at one of the most beloved radio stations in the U.S. Her brothers went back home, and Patsy stayed, crashing at first with Millie and Dolly Good at their manager's house. She and the Prairie Ramblers were not on the Saturday Night Barn Dance initially. Their first gigs were a show that aired daily at 5.30 and 7.30 a.m. called Wake Up and Smile. On the weekends, they were a part of a touring road show with Gene Autry and his roundup shows, playing state fairs, music festivals, and picnics across the Midwest. This formed a bond between Patsy and Gene, one that would last into their final years. Salty Holmes was the comedian of the Prairie Ramblers, and Patsy recalls the closing number of the act for a time was Tiger Rag, in which Patsy, who's quite short, taking over on bass, 
which was comically big compared to her. Jack Taylor taking over on Patsy's guitar, and Salty Holmes doing a goofy buck and wing dance. Here's how Patsy talks about working with the Prairie Ramblers. Because, see, I grew up with ten brothers. I feel more at ease around a bunch of men than I do with a bunch of women. I steer clear of that, if possible. She got to mingle with other members of the WLS cast, and she did catch one early break. Here's how she tells it. She says, when they hired me, I was just to go out on the road with the Prairie Ramblers. So I had never been on the barn dance. Well, anyway, Lulu Bell's mother was ill in the hospital, and so Lulu Bell was not going to be on the barn dance, so they had room for a girl. So they called the Ramblers and I off the road to fill a spot on the barn dance. So I'm up there, you know, knocking my brains out on this first number, first night on the barn dance. But Lulu Bell had come down to the barn dance. She'd left the hospital, and she was sitting in the audience. Do you know Lulu Bell? She says to the interviewer, who responds, not personally. Patsy continues, well, she's a comedian. She was throwing peanuts clear across the center aisle. Out in the audience, that is. Of course, every eye in the audience is watching Lulu Bell and her peanuts. Here I'm up there, knocking my brains out, you know. My gosh, is that the way they do business back here? That's the first time I was on the barn dance. But I stopped the show. I've never known why. There's fate again. There would continue to be competition between Patsy and Lulu Bell, it seems, for the years following. Patsy insists it was healthy. Here's another recollection from that night. I remember the very first WLS National Barn Dance on which I performed. I remember sitting on a bale of hay, holding my guitar, and waiting patiently for my turn at the microphone. Every show had a theme, and that night it was a salute to the States. I planned on doing the song I recorded with Jimmy Davis in New York, Montana Plains. When it was my turn to perform, I stepped up to the microphone as I was introduced to the audience. The announcer asked what I was going to sing, and I said, I'm going to sing a song about Montana. The announcer said, that state has already been taken, and asked what else I would be singing. This was live radio, so I had to think of something, quick. I looked back at the Prairie Ramblers. We had rehearsed Montana Plains. I'm going to sing a song about Texas, I said, and then twanged my guitar in the direction of Montana Plains. The Prairie Ramblers followed my lead, and when I got to the part that said Montana Plains, I simply inserted Texas Plains. The theater crowd and the radio listening audience loved it. From then on, I was stuck with it. Texas Plains becomes Patsy's signature song at all of her performances from then on. The improvisation of switching on the spot from Montana Plains to Texas Plains sounds uh, kind of impressive, but Texas Plains is Patsy's old buddy from California, Stuart Hamblin's song. Here's a 1934 recording of that song. I wanna drink my java from an old can while the moon goes climbing high. I wanna hear the song of the football will. I wanna hear the coyotes cry. I wanna feel a saddle horse between my legs, riding him out on the range. Just to kick him in the side, make him show a step and pride. Back on the Texas plains. Each night in my dreams, somehow it seems that I'm back where I belong. Here's Patsy Montana and the Prairie Ramblers version of Montana Plains, which we assume is the same song she recorded with Jimmy Davis in 1932. I want to drink my java from an old tin can when the moon goes to shine and high. I want to hear the call of the football will. 
Okay, like she says, same song with Montana subbed for Texas. I'm not casting aspersions on Patsy Montana. She's not a beat biter. She's young at this time, probably 18, and it's not like people weren't always playing other people's songs. It was quick thinking, but all she really did was perform Stuart Hamblin's song without her adaption. I should note in another telling of the story, Patsy says that she goes to sing Texas Plains, but then she switches it to Montana Plains, which does make some sense, but it carries the same problems. Keep this story in mind as we move forward. It will become important later. One early morning, around 4.30 a.m., while Patsy was on her way to her 5.30 wake-up-and-smile spot, she spotted smoke pouring out of the basement of an apartment building. Doing what she knew she had to do, and knowing that few people would be awake at that hour, Patsy rushed into the building and saved the lives of the people inside. Standby Magazine printed an account of Patsy's heroism, and Patsy says, Because so much of the information in Standby was pure fiction, when they printed my heroic deed, I'm sure few even believed it. Except the fans. They believed everything. Within six months of starting at WLS, Patsy and the Prairie Ramblers were in the studio in Chicago recording tracks. In December 1933, they recorded Homesick for My Cabin. My first home was a cabin Built in the heart of the hill It was there I first saw the sunshine Home Corral, Montana Plains, and Waltz of the Hills. I love the beautiful music that's made by the Malkinbird's trill. It seems like all nature joins with me in singing the waltz of the hills. On the latter two, we can hear Patsy play violin. The Prairie Ramblers had to change their sound along with their name to back Patsy Montana, moving from old-time string band and hillbilly to western swing. Salty Holmes sees the pivotal moment coming when Patsy and the Prairie Ramblers went to New York in 1935 to record some tracks for Decca. He says, We left Chicago, an old-time string band, and we came back from New York as a cowboy band. Patsy says, Well, I think their music sort of had to grow, progress. The numbers that I remember them singing is, Oh, the religious song, their big number was This World's Not My Home. They do stuff strictly what you'd call bluegrass now. It was hillbilly then. I guess me coming in there with a cowgirl image with the fringed skirt and the cowboy hat, and we put together, and I don't remember saying very much, but all at once, they were wearing the boots and the cowboy hats and stuff. See, Prairie Farmer owned the name Prairie Ramblers because they came there as the Kentucky Ramblers. I can remember WLS tried to get me to sign over my name to them. A lot of us didn't know very much then, but I knew that wasn't right. And I didn't. I'm glad I didn't. I don't know what their purpose was. So we became Patsy Montana and the Prairie Ramblers. By that time, you know, Bob Wills is getting big. The singing cowboys are coming on the scene. So Western was the thing then. It just hit me at the right time and the right place. I look back now. I was lucky because I was right at home with it. I grew up with it. 
Patsy, still not a regular on the barn dance in 1935, remembers Grace Wilson fondly. She says, I found myself always watching Grace Wilson. When she was on, I'd always get out on a front bale of hay where I could see her. We were sort of an oval in shape there. She was from the old vaudeville stage, and I learned a lot from her. How to, I don't know what I learned, but I learned by watching her. I didn't know I was learning, but I admired her and liked her. I would say she was almost my mentor when I came to WLS. When asked what were the things about her that impressed Patsy, she says, she always stopped the show, and maybe in the back of my mind I got to figuring, now how does she do that all the time? Maybe it's her appeal to the audience. Even now, I think of that audience as one person. They're just somebody I'm singing to. Even empty seats, you have to imagine, you know, it's somebody, but they don't clap, you know. No, I think maybe I learned that from her. Maybe not knowing, but I admired her very much, and I always managed to catch her act. So we know that the Prairie Ramblers also recorded bodier songs as the Sweet Violet Boys. The legend is that Patsy was never allowed in the Sweet Violet Boys sessions, that the A&R man, Art Slatherly, would always chase Patsy out. Patsy says she just sit out in the hallway saying, I heard it all, but he didn't know it. Of course, none of the Sweet Violet Boys material would make it onto the WLS airwaves. Patsy remembers how strict WLS was in those days. You couldn't talk about divorce. You couldn't use the word hillbilly. The clothing, particularly of female stars, was policed by the station owner, Burridge D. Butler, whenever he was in town. Patsy compares Burridge D. Butler to both Red Foley and Sam Walton of Walmart fame. Red Foley because depending on who you asked, you either thought he was wonderful or loathsome. Sam Walton because of his business and marketing savvy. Butler's primary audience was the rural farmer, and he did what he needed to do to win their loyalty, so they would continue buying his products. He set himself up as kind of a moral authority, according to Patsy, through his farm publication Prairie Farmer and through Standby Magazine. At one point, he ran a long-standing anti-chicken thievery campaign, uniting the rural farmer against this blight. From what I understand, the magnitude and pervasiveness of people stealing chickens was largely Butler's invention. Butler was also sexist. Here's what Patsy had to say about that. When I first started at WLS in 1933, my western costume was a fringed leather skirt, real Colt 45 revolvers on my hips, a blouse, short western boots, a scarf around my neck, and a big bolero-style western hat. I was so tiny, I thought the hat made me look taller. Skirts were fringed along the bottom, so if the skirt ended where a regular skirt was hemmed, it would have looked like I had on something too long for me. The correct hem length had to stop at the bottom of the fringe. The result made Butler think my skirts were too short. He commented how he detested the way some of his entertainers tried to turn the barn dance into a girly show. When I look back at those pictures, I think he was just criticizing to be criticizing. I guess you will just have to judge for yourself. Butler also said he never met a woman worth more than $40 a week. He hated having to deal with women in business. Consider the source. See what I had to put up with? I told you, growing up in a man's world with ten brothers paid off. Another challenge that women at WLS faced was in the song department. One of the rules was that an artist couldn't repeat any song they sang within two weeks. For performers on several shows like Patsy and the Prairie Ramblers, that meant having at least 85 songs in their repertoire. 
Patsy says, it's a good thing I could read music. See where it came in so handy? Of course, I learned early in my career to transpose. They never write anything in the key for a woman to sing in. It's all very good training. I look back now, I don't think I'd change the era that I grew up in. I really don't, if I could. Speaking of repertoire, Patsy Montana recorded 87 masters with various labels with the Prairie Ramblers between 1933 and 1940. Many of these were songs that she had written. We'll get to these in a second. One day, Gene Autry's manager, Joe Frank, handed Patsy a scrap of paper with the words Cowboy's Sweetheart scribbled on it. He said he thought it was catchy and that Patsy might be able to do something with it. The paper found its way to the bottom of Patsy's handbag and was forgotten for the time being. Around this time, a new face appeared at the station, the cousin of Mac from the act Mac and Bob. In a vine-covered shack in the mountains, bravely fighting the battle of time, is a dear one who's weathering life's sorrows. Tis that silver-haired daddy of mine. If I could recall all the heartaches. Paul Rose was hired to help Mac and Bob manage their day-to-day life. He started out as their chauffeur and eventually became their manager. Patsy was taken with Paul, and the two of them grabbed every chance they could in their busy schedules to be together. One day, Paul got an urgent telegram that his grandmother was ill. He left immediately for home. Patsy, lonely and mopey on tour in a hotel room without Paul, decided to clean out her purse. She found the scrap of paper with Cowboy's sweetheart on it and thought, I could sure use a cowboy tonight, and proceeded to write the song. Here's how she describes it. The first thing I decided was to make the rhythm and the melody line as close to Texas Plains as I could get. That song fit my voice and personality, and one similar to it might be a way for my fans to allow me to sing something else. Just remember that songwriters did not abound. If a singer wanted a song, they had to write it. While trying to capture the essence of Texas Plains, I also looked at the seldom-used third verse. There were phrases in it I loved and never got to sing. I especially loved the idea of the rain in my face, being away from all the city lights, the moon shining down, going at a cow hand's pace, and sleeping beneath the stars. I want to hear the thunder as she booms and rolls. I want to feel the rain in my face. A thousand miles from your city lights, drawing a cow hand's wave. I want to sleep at night beneath the stars above with the cold moon shining down. I want to cook my coffee over cactus coals 50 miles from town. I want to drink my java from my nose. Remember, I was really lonely that night and a long way from home in the Ozarks. Most of all, I missed Paul. From those phrases, you can see how I began molding I Want to Be a Cowboy Sweetheart into my signature song. From those few phrases, the words just started coming and I let them. I looked down and the whole song was finished. It came that easy. I cannot claim that with every song I wrote, but this one happened just as I said it did. There it was. I do not think I changed more than a word or two after that first writing. I want to ride old paint going at a run. I want to feel the wind in my face. A thousand miles from these city lights. Oh, 
while the moon shines down from above. I want to strum my guitar and yodel it. Oh, that's the life that I love. I did Stuart Hamblin, remember the author of Texas Plains, would gripe to Patsy for the rest of his life how closely Patsy's iconic hit sounded like his. Patsy wrote, I want to be a cowboy sweetheart about Paul, and not about Gene Autry, as some, I guess, had suspected. Concerning Patsy's relationship with Paul Rose, she says, I don't know what falling in love really means. To me, you just get to the point where you don't want anyone else to have him. That night, I knew exactly how I felt about Paul. He says I proposed, but I didn't. Patsy's lifelong signature song was written, but not yet recorded. In winter of 1935, Patsy and the Prairie Ramblers are lured away from Chicago by their program sponsor, Colorback, a hair dye company, to have their own program on WOR in New York called Smile a While. It took the offer, and Patsy, Paul, and the Ramblers moved to New York. Patsy says, we were the first country act in up there, and they told us later they expected us to walk in with our hound dogs and our jugs on our shoulders. They'd never seen a country act. While in New York, they recorded several more sides, including Riding Old Paint. I'll get me a herd and start me a brand. The way I went for man is a man. Riding old paint and lead no ball. Ride no paint, lead no ball. Boys with work is coming fall. Boys to the mountain, live till I'm old. And Old Black Mountain Trail. Patsy calls A&R man Art Slatherly her musical angel for the things that he did for her career. In August of 1935, he produced a session with the Prairie Ramblers. He's the one that suggested she record Cowboy's Sweetheart. She says, in 1935, few, if any, girl singers recorded solo records. This simply was unheard of in those days. I was thrilled he believed in me and my song, and I did not reject his suggestion. But I had been brainwashed along with the rest of the country. I did not believe in myself, the song, or the interest that might be generated by such a recording. Out west of the great divide I want to hear 
with a coyote howling While the sun sinks in the west I want to be a cowboy sweetheart That's the life that I love best So the song is recorded, but it doesn't hit immediately. Patsy and the Prairie Ramblers return to Chicago. I should mention it's also in New York that Patsy gives birth to her first child, Beverly Paula Rose. By 1936, Patsy makes it to the network portion of the barn dance on Saturday nights, increasing her exposure tremendously. By the end of 1936, Cowboy Sweetheart was becoming a hit record. They recut the record with Patsy's new label, Decca, and benefited from Decca's promotional efforts as well. It's notable that there were no country charts at the time, so Cowboy Sweetheart landed on the pop charts, reaching the top 10. Back at WLS, she says, I had some bargaining power and I used it. My contract was coming up soon, and I went over to the WLS big offices to talk things over. The going rate was $60 a week, and with a long line of bull, they politely told me all they would offer was $40 a week. They said there was just not enough money in the budget to pay everyone the same amount. I quietly, politely, and patiently allowed them to finish their long-winded speech. Then I said, no thank you. I walked out of the office, down the hall to the elevators, and left the building. No job, no money, and scared to death. But I held on to my guns. Their excuse, of course, was that there were men who had families to feed. I needed to eat, too. They called and said they would pay me the standard $60 a week and never tried to pull unequal pay on me again. Patsy says that many recognize her as paving the way not only for women to be solo artists and country, but also to earn as much as men. She says, if all I went through just to survive helped those that followed, all I can say is Reba, Brenda, Holly, Susie, Shelby, Kathy, Jet, Tanya, Leanne, and all the others, you're welcome. As for the royalties of the recording of Cowboy Sweetheart, Patsy didn't fare so well. She says since recording was a side gig to her radio stardom, she didn't really pay a lot of attention and initially just recorded for a fee with no deal for royalties. As a result, she certainly did not become wealthy when Cowboy Sweetheart sold a million records. It wasn't until later in her career that she would try to get her royalty situation under control. She says, I remember Cowboy Sweetheart, you know, girls weren't selling then. Well, anyway, somehow or other, Art Slatherly liked Cowboy Sweetheart. And, you know, we got, I got paid. I don't know what the Ramblers did, but I got paid $25 for making that record. And I was glad to get it. I don't remember any royalty or nothing for at least a year until the song began to take off. That's what I say. They just, out of their big heart, they put me on royalty, I guess. Cowboy Sweetheart's success is staggering, considering this... Patsy says, about four years ago, at UCLA out there, you know, in California, they had a thing going. Folk music in the U.S., like women in radio, early radio. That was my night. I was there. They had a professor, somebody there, of mathematics. I don't know how they figured this out. I just remember what he said. He said, according to when Cowboy Sweetheart sold its first million back in that era, the number of people who had phonographs to play it on, 90% of those people had to buy that record. Now, my gosh, that happened now. I could lend Gene Autry money, couldn't I? Now, that's the way he figured it. The phenomenal part about it, it began to take off during the recession. Heck, probably only paid a quarter a record then. 
As far as Patsy's songwriting process goes, she says she writes the titles first. She says, yeah, I got titles written all over my house at home so I don't forget them. I write them and forget about them, and then I write the chorus. But when I was on WLS, you had a perfect showcase for records. I would do the song on the air, and if I got a reaction, I did it on the barn dance three or four Saturday nights. Then, if I got a reaction, I recorded it. You had a perfect showcase to try out a number first, which is great. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Patsy Montana's songs and the image she presented through them. Cowboy Sweetheart represents a woman who desires equality with the man she wants. Think back to the Billy Maxwell episode from season one. My personal favorite episode, if I'm going to be honest. And I did fix the bad sound mixing, FYI, just in case you want to revisit it. Maxwell's song, A Cowboy's Wife, is almost a dirge of domesticity. The wife waits at home, watches, listens, and cooks, only to be met by a cold, indifferent, returning cowboy. Cadillacs, they are quiet and somewhere. I hear a horse's shrill name. I know that my cowboy is coming, so I hurriedly turn away. And picks up the fire in the cook stove Put the sourdough biscuits to bake Stir up the boiling frijoles And salt and flour This unsatisfied spirit remains in Patsy Montana's songs, but it manifests itself differently. She doesn't wait around. She goes out there and joins the cowboy. Through most of her songs, she's not always independent, but she is out there, doing stuff. Missing home sometimes, but who doesn't? Patsy also wrote a couple of answer songs, taking something that another artist had written and giving a rebuttal of sorts. Of course, this is something that Kitty Wells would later do with It Wasn't God Who Made Honky Tonk Angels and Be the First Woman to reach number one on the country chart. As I sit here tonight, the jukebox playing the tune about the wild side of life. As I listen to the words you are saying, it brings memories when I was a trustful wife. It wasn't God who made honky-tonk angels, as you said in the words of your song. Patsy says, well now, we went through a series there of answer songs. You know, they do now once in a while, answer songs. See, I remember the Ramblers recorded Nobody's Darling, and I believe Jimmy Davis wrote it. Well, I came along with the answer. That, like She Buckaroo, was the answer to Strawberry Roan. Well, you know, we had to. They didn't write girl songs. We had to kind of write our own. That started me writing songs. Patsy's answer songs are in response to Strawberry Roan, the classic cowboy poem written by Curly Fletcher, published in 1915 and turned into a song. It's about a cowboy known for breaking horses, who meets his match when he tries to break a strawberry roan. 
I was hanging around town just a spending me time Out of a job and not a making a dime When a feller steps up and he said, I suppose You're a bronc fighter by the looks of your clothes Well, you guesses me right and a good one I claim I asked him if he had any bad ins to tame He said, I've a bad one that really can buck And throwing all cowboys having great luck Well, I gets real excited I asked what he'd pay If I'd ride that pony a couple of days He said ten bucks and I said I'm your man I've never seen a pony that I couldn't fan In Patsy Montana's She Buckaroo, she's both breaking the strawberry roan and bucking conventions of womanhood, in a way becoming the horse and rider at the same time. Some gals, they like babies and houses and things, but give me the feel of a horse that has wings. I'll ride him straight up like all cowboys do. I'm a straight ride, lassie, a she buckaroo. There's a secret in life for which I sure won't. I'm pining to ride that old strawberry roan. I'll make him hop out like an old kangaroo. I'm a tough riding lassie, a she Alas, however, the song ends with Patsy being broken by love. Someday when I'm ready, I'll ride down the road. I'll rope me a cowpoke that's never been throwed. I'll hog tie him tight till he swears he'll be true. I'm a man roping lassie, a she buckaroo. I'll throw away my shaps and get dresses instead. I'll learn to make biscuits and maybe cornbread. We'll live in a town, I think that will do. And goodbye to Patsy the Shebuckaroo. Another answer song is in response to Jimmy Davis's Nobody Darling But Mine. A man wants to keep his darling from being anyone else's darling, even after he dies. Goodbye, goodbye, little darling. I'm leaving this cold world behind. Promise me that you will never be nobody's darling but mine. The response song was not written by Patsy. It was written by Bob Miller, who wrote a lot of songs at the time. The response song is Woman's Answer to Nobody's Darling, and it's not really what you might expect. At least not what you might hope. I promised my darling I'd be true As true as the bright stars above I've sealed up my heart like a locket And never again will I love In the rest of the song, the dead man tells his angel mom about his darling on earth. The darling on earth plants flowers on his grave and asks God to let her die too. Okay, so here are a few of Patsy's song highlights from the 30s, in my opinion. Out on the lonely prairie, out where the wildflowers grow, out where the coyote holler, out where the blizzard blow. 
that's the place for me. Riding the saddle, the cowpuncher saddle, my little cowpony. There's a lone star shining in the sky tonight, like a garden beacon above. There's a lone star showing me the way tonight to the lone star state that I love, like a Texas ranger. I wonder, but I've learned a Texan never should roam. There's a lone star shining in the sky tonight. It's guiding my way back home. Mid the plains of old Montana lives a cowboy girl named Abella of the Golden West. As she gallops on her pony and shouts to him, "Whoa, there, Tony, that's when." On the prairies, lasso when we start, and before we part, she lassoed my poor heart. Sometimes when her bronco gets to barking, then I throw a kiss to her and say, "Out and up and up on my pony, we'll go a racing, Cupid is chasing, and if he gets us, there'll be big doings in old Montana." Looking down the 
he said, I'll be back another day. Now the moon is shining pale on a lonesome gal, leaning on the old hot rail in the big car. Patsy was able to manage her professional career while raising Beverly at this time by bringing her to work and, as impossible as this would be in today's world, get backstage fans to babysit for her. She and Paul would also trade off parenting duties when the other was doing a task. Patsy says she did a lot of writing in the afternoon while Beverly was napping. In the late 30s, Patsy and her family move out to California for a time for Patsy to appear in the Gene Autry and June Story movie Colorado Sunset. Patsy plays a cafe waitress who, believe it or not, is also a musician and gets to play cowboy sweetheart in the pictures. Hi, short and sweet. Hello. You a seal trainer, too? No, but I used to bend Ginger's axe. What'd you do? Well, I opened it one and closed it in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make any money running the restaurant. <laughs> you sure can. The frog's going to eat here. <laughs> really, no fooling. What you doing in this country? Would you really like to know? Uh-huh. Gosh! I want to be a cowboy sweetheart. I want to learn to rope and to ride. According to Patsy, the directors wanted her to do more pictures with them, but she said no, that she thought she might be pregnant. It turns out she was, and she gives birth to Judy Rochelle Rose in April of 1938. It's the end of the 30s, and here's how Patsy describes her life at this time. I want to be a cowboy sweetheart settled into the top 10 pop chart. I became a movie star and radio celebrity, and with Paul, Beverly, and Judy, my life was complete. That sounds like a good place to end this episode on Patsy Montana. We have one more episode in this trilogy on Patsy Montana. We'll take a look at her career in the 1940s and the initial decline of the barn dance. This will help us frame the last few remaining episodes of this season. As always, if you want to get in touch with me or support this podcast, you can do so by looking at the information in the show description. Thanks for listening.